What role does sin play in how we interact with the world? Furthermore, how do we actually understand the world around us? And that brings us to the question of the fall. Do we remember that we are fallen creatures? Well, welcome to Nazarene Open University here with Kingdom of the Logos. And this is part of the series, Becoming a Holy People, part two, looking at the fall and the role that sin has and how we understand the world. So thank you for joining us. I'm Pastor Jay Dylan Proctor. There are two others with me here in the studio. I'm Pastor Amanda Sparrow. And I'm Pastor Mike Proctor. And today, we're going to be talking a lot about how we navigate the world and have a good biblical worldview that makes us sufficient to really stand from day to day. So, most of our conversation is going to be centered around a simple premise. God alone makes the good, and you are a fallen creature. That's going to be the core thesis for everything we talk about. But before we dive into that, let's open up in prayer. Pastor Amanda, would you pray for us? Sure. Let us pray. Excuse me. <laughs> let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your many blessings. We thank you that you have given us an opportunity to come and to gather and to talk about who you are and who you have called us to be. So be with your people, we pray. May everything we do be for your glory and the upbuilding of your kingdom. We ask this in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. 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 All right, so we are using the Church of the Nazarene district modules as our guiding path. However, we are at a point right now where the hour has drawn, where really everything the church does is cross-cultural in the world around us. And that's just the basic fact. The world around us does not begin with biblical assumptions. And we in the church do need to begin with biblical assumptions so that we can navigate well and we can be effective in applying the Great Commission to everything around us. And so what we're going to do today is we're going to center around my main premise that I've already set, and that is that God alone makes the good and you are a fallen creature. If you can get that right, then everything covered in this module program will fall into place. However, if you get that wrong, it doesn't matter how well you understand the technicalities that are outlined in this program, none of it will matter. God alone makes the good and you are a fallen creature. And there's no exceptions to that. And let me just go ahead and put some pointers on this. The more I have matured as a pastor, the more I have become more whole and complete as a man, the more I have realized a lot of the things that I thought made people good and made them holy and sanctified does not. Ordination does not sanctify people, nor does it make them good. Your credentials do not make you good, wise, or sanctified. And to the contrast of that, you know, a lot of times people will say, well, you know, we'll invert the formula. Anything that opposes the culture around you, anything that is just rebellious and says, well, I'm countercultural, the gospel was countercultural, being countercultural does not make you good, sanctified, or holy. There's no magic rule. God makes the good, period. On the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit came down in tongues of fire. It is what made people sanctified, period. And we are fallen creatures. Today, our Bible study is going to look at Acts 8, and we're going to have three images of character and see how some of these people remembered they are fallen creatures, some do not. But before we get into that, I actually want us to talk a little bit about our district module pointers. So let's start by talking about the fall. One of the things which undergirds the biblical worldview is that God created the heavens and the earth, and at the end of each day, God says they are good. And 
good is not just a English word that means something is positive or okay. There's, there's actually a moral element to something being good. And through the fall, we are deprived of our primary relationship with God, and our other relationships are therefore distorted. There's some sort of fracture which comes in. Our capacity to love, our capacity for hope, all of these things start to collapse. Now, there are different opinions that people have throughout the church. You know, you can look at the very strong Calvinistic doctrine of total depravity, and I think that's a good place for us to start as we have our conversation. And I wanted to throw this over to Pastor Mike. I know he's talked a little bit about right relationships and how important that is. Just step in, Pastor Mike, and talk to us a little bit about the fall and where you see total depravity sitting in all that. Well, absolutely. You know, I think when you start with this premise that that God created out of love, things are good, and he made them good. But it is uh, absolute that we have fallen from that goodness. And so part of the understanding holiness is also to understand that we are those fallen creatures and that we repent and seek God to transform us more and more into Christ-likeness or that image of God that we were once originally created in. And so uh, we have to start with that premise of understanding that sin is relational or really broken relationships. And so we have those those four areas of broken relationship. Relationship uh, with God is broken. Relationship with uh, one another's broken relationship with the all of creation is broken and then really and truly relationship within oneself is broken and so that's where the fall brings us and we have to address the sin problem that is in our lives and so uh, you know first of all that repentance that is you know humble and and uh, uh, and and you know a, a um, what's the word I'm looking for, Pastor Amanda? Um, remorse. Mm. There must be this remorse to, to acknowledge that we are fallen creatures, that we turn to God and and allow him to transform us into something good, to restore those four uh, relationships that I was talking about. And it's not just one, but it must be all. Yeah. Mm. Pastor Amanda? Well, I think as we're talking about being deprived and depravity and looking at this kind of section of the Nazarene module, it, the the module makes a contrast between Wesleyan uh, holiness and Calvinist. But I think, honestly, even the full five-point uh, Calvinists probably aren't even going to take total depravity to its umpteenth end. Um, so the, the way that this article kind of writes this is that the Calvinists believe that total depravity is that... Um, totally depraved without God and corrupted beyond repair in this life. And yet, I mean, every good Calvinist I know still pursues a life of righteousness. So um, I think we've got to be careful when we talk about total depravity, exactly what we're discussing. But there is, like Pastor Mike said, it's brokenness with God, brokenness with others, brokenness with creation, brokenness even within ourselves. And if this depravity is brokenness, then we can unequivocally say we are all broken but we are not beyond hope or healing and the image that we were created in still exists within us it is maybe not the way it was supposed to be but where there is love where there's compassion where there's creativity again that that 
those things may be slightly off kilter or really off kilter, but they still exist. And even in the deepest, darkest places of human depravity, God still exists because that's where we've got uh, the image of God. And of course, then Wesleyan holiness uh, denominations would then articulate this as prevenient grace. But we find that even in depravity, which is why Wesleyans are a little bit hesitant to say things like total depravity, because we say even in our depravedness, God is still acting. Yeah. Yeah. And and with that depravity, it is that broken relationship. And so I think it's important to understand that that sin is not a substance. It is a broken relationship. And so, you know, for us uh, to understand holiness and sanctification, it is a relationship with God, giving ourselves to God and God transforming us. And so we still have those choices. And thus, that is why we believe Um, you know, that we can lose our salvation. And so, you know, the once saved, always saved mentality, you know, you have to start from really a different premise, I, I guess, somewhere. But for us, sin is this broken relationship that, that, uh, it deprives us from, from God. Sure. And as I say, the best commentary on scripture that I've ever read, and I will take this to the bank, every day and twice on Sunday, is John Milton's Paradise Lost, period. End of story. And John Milton, he makes the statement, All man could want, I made him just and whole, sufficient to have stood, though free to fall. What proof could they have given sincere of true allegiance, constant faith, or love? And now, what he's talking about here is that when God made Adam and Eve, The test of real love was they had free will. It was sufficient to stand, though free to fall. Those who stood, stood. Those who fell, they fell. Whether I foreknew had no influence on their choice. They did it. They chose. Like we always worry about predestination. Did God know? Paradise Law spells it out easily. Whether or not God knew had no influence on what they chose. They chose it themselves. Right. And... The reason why I want us to go back to that is real love made creatures with will that was sufficient to stand, though free to fall. And what we have here on the issue of total depravity, going back to my original thesis, God alone makes the good and you are a fallen creature. You are totally depraved aside from God. Mm. And the only hope out of that comes from God. And now the interesting thing is recognizing that actually is the hopeful pathway. The people who will deny that there is total depravity outside of God, that is actually the real hopelessness because you're, you're not dealing with the world the way it actually is. And just to kind of tie this into Exodus 20 real quick, where we find in Exodus 20 verses 4 and 5, it talks about idolatry. We're at the third commandment, and the scripture reads, you shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is let me get this scripture where I can fully read it. What is in heaven above or in the earth below or in the water under the earth? You shall not worship them nor serve them. Now, what we find here is that God says anything can be an idol. In fact, you go back to the second commandment, people even take the name of God and try to abuse that. But here in this third commandment, the heavenly things can be made into idol. Not just worldly things, not just basketball, not just golden calves, but heavenly things can be made into idols. And of course, evil things, those things beneath the earth, they can too. But there's no magic rules. No magic rules. God alone makes the good, and you're a fallen creature. Pastor Mike? You know, I think that reaches back to that statement that you said, you know, about us, uh, you you know, we 
we cannot make ourselves good. That 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 God alone is good. And so by having being understood that God created us in in God's image and that we are a fallen creature. We are that living, breathing, walking image. And so these idols are images. And so what that really is is saying we're going to make ourselves good with, with idolatry yeah. and, uh, and, and create these idols of God and, and deem it good or whatever. So, you know, I, th- I think there's this whole understanding that we have to understand that we have a God of love and that we are, the reason we don't have idols is because we are the image of God created in that image, and it's fallen. So we need that transformation uh, of God. Well, and also, I mean, we don't need idols because we don't need to manipulate God. No. God is faithful. God is love. God is abundant life. There's no reason to manipulate God to get love and abundant life and um, it doesn't come in the ways often we wish it would come or want it to come, but um, God is a God of blessing. And so th- this is the phenomenal thing, right, of the story of the people of God, especially in the Old Testament, is every time they try to manipulate God to get more wealth, more resources, more land, more power, more authority, they end up losing yeah. those things. But it yeah. is only in abandoning those things and trusting a God of plenty and living in a, in a, a realm and a worldview of plenty versus scarcity that they actually find abundant life. Sure. Yeah. We're and, utterly, I'm sorry, we're utterly dependent upon God to, to deem us as good and transform us. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And Christianity at its core is a truth which finds victory through peculiar contradictions. Mm. Paul outlines for us there in Romans that you're going to be a slave to something. But when you become a slave to God, you find more liberty, more sovereignty of your own will than you will being a slave to any idol of the world, any idol of the nothingness of the void. Being yoked to God is the only way to really find freedom. Also, those who want to live, you find that through death with Christ. There's a lot of things which are peculiar in the way they hold attention between things which seem contradictory. But yet, as you just said there, putting aside the idols actually brings you all the goodness that you you thought you were pursuing and and it brings joy and happiness that we're longing for and uh, you know that is what makes us complete and whole individuals sure Mm. all right the next thing i want us to talk about is the role of original sin and sort of the evolution of the the church around us you know we wonder how we got here so original sin this whole concept of adam and eve falling into to a sinful existence where the curse of death has come with its vile rot, which is the ultimate wage of sin. It's the ultimate price. Original sin, it's a key development in really the holiness theology here in America, which the Church of the Nazarene has been a product of in one way or another, though. I mean, we can debate how much of that still lingers. But Phoebe Palmer, who is very influential in all this, she makes a really, really interesting observation In her own experience of entire sanctification, it caused her to relinquish the idols of husband and children. Now, we oftentimes wouldn't think of our own family being an idol. But, of course, Jesus says, you know, there's a man that comes along and says, you know, I'd follow you, but i got to go bury my father. Well, you, you let that get in the way of the kingdom. There's someone who comes along and says, I'd rather go say goodbye to my family. And, well, that kept you away from the kingdom of God. And... One of the logics that we find with Phoebe Palmer's uh, ministry and her theology is the first commandment, that is to love God with all your heart, all your soul, all of your being. 
that actually enables you to love others. That enables you to mm-hmm. love your husband and your children so much better than if you thought you threw away God. Again, that's one of those peculiar tensions where when you love God first, you actually end up loving your husband and children more. But that's just an interesting thing which happens when you remember that you are a fallen creature and God is the only pathway to the good. Mm. You know, when Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, no one gets to the Father except through me. There is no other path to goodness. None. Well, and I think we also see, like, just how sneaky, if we are not watchful, I think is it's Peter in his epistle that talks about the devil being like a roaring uh, or prowling lion. Um, we, we want the roaring lion. We, we often miss the lion just kind of hidden off in the grass somewhere. Um, but, yeah, Phoebe Palmer makes this excellent observation in her life and probably in many people's lives where we think, oh, you know, that's a good thing. Therefore, how could it be an idol? Yeah. But anything, again, anything we use to yep. manipulate God or manipulate others or even to manipulate ourselves into thinking we can do it or we're okay will become an idol. Yeah. And and so this, this is, like you said, what you're talking about, identifying ourselves as fallen is really this process of reflection and repentance and confession yeah. that leads us to um, understanding who God has actually called us to be. Yeah, Pastor Mike. You know, I think it's, she hit she hit something really right there. Hit the nail on the head when she said what God has called us to be. There's this uh, atmosphere that you, that you see in some places where there's wanting to to wallow in brokenness and sin, we're not called, even though we have to start with this premise that we are fallen creatures, we are not called to be fallen creatures. We are called to be men and women of God and living in right relationship. Mm. And that's something that Phoebe Palmer gets. She understands that the real upward aspiration starts with that recognition that I am a fallen creature. Right. She understands I can be the righteous woman who is made fully in the image of God and aspire up towards heaven when I start from that premise. And that's something we have got to get back to. And I say back to because it is no longer an undergirding principle in a lot of the things we do. It's it's not the starting point that says we have to have those upward aspirations. You know, I think the best understanding of humility is you go outside and you look at the mountain And you recognize that the mountain is much larger than you. You're not going to lie and say, I'm a giant who can step over the mountain. You go outside and you say, you know, that's 800 feet taller than me. But you know what? Now I know what I need to do to climb up 800 feet. It's it's a spur to move forwards with those Mm -hmm. aspirations and endurance. So the last point I want us to look at before we get to Acts chapter 8, because we're going to have some biblical application here, which I think is just a phenomenal place for us to go on this uh, module, is... The language of the way of salvation and not just a singular point or moment of salvation. So good understanding of Christianity understands that Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. And again, I want to emphasize that word truth. We have forgotten that also Christ is the founder of objective truth. In the beginning, God creates the heavens and the earth. The word is there, the word of God, which becomes incarnate through Christ Jesus through some mysterious way. But Christianity is built on a factual claim that there was a man who died on a cross and resurrected on the third day. Amen. That's not a creed. It's not a philosophy, not a perspective or a narrative. That is something which is either true or it is not. And that undergirds the entire Christian faith. And when you look at the history of the Enlightenment, you look at the history of all the many revival movements we have, they're all built on that. 
this idea that there is one truth, one way. But also the early church often referred to Christianity as the way, and there's something alive there. It's stirring, it's moving, it's, it's growing, it's maturing. When we use the language of the way of salvation, not just a singular point or moment, we understand that God, he is imparting righteousness to us. In other words, there is movement there. There is righteousness coming down to us. It spurs us along. And when we understand this, I want us to take this in the direction of upward aspirations because it is something which brings hope. It moves us upwards. And that is something we, we have to attach ourselves to. We have to grab onto that. We have to be attached to it. Any thoughts on that before we jump to Acts 8? Pastor Mike? Yeah, you know, uh, I like to think of salvation as that moment. Uh, you know, we said we're not going to do that. But if we understand salvation and we get that same word uh, salve, um, from the Latin, salve being something like Neos born that we place on a wound. That salvation of God is healing in those broken relationships from that fallen creation. And we are called to be healed and made whole. And Lord knows I need that salve applied over and over mm -hmm. again. And we see that uh, relationships and reconciliation taking place when we enter into this salvation. And, and it's, a, it's it, like Dylan said, it's not just that one moment thing, but it is constantly growing and we are aspiring to be transformed more and more to what God originally created us to be. All righty. So we're going to go to Acts chapter 8. Again, rehashing our premise here. God alone makes the good and you are a fallen creature. When we understand that, and that's what guides our worldview, that prepares us to navigate life well, but also have the great hope of the gospel that moves up. Mm -hmm. So we're going to look at Acts chapter 8, some um, selections from it. And we're going to see the first image of Saul, who is fully given over to evil, by way, in the beginning of this chapter. He has forgotten he is a fallen creature. He's doing heinous stuff, though he probably believes he's doing something good because he thinks that his own wisdom about the law, his own application of theology makes him good. It doesn't. The second person we see is Simon the Sorcerer, and he, I actually think, is one of Scripture's best illustrations of somebody who's lukewarm. When we get to read him, I'll explain why I think that's the case. But he tries to blend the goodness of God with his own depraved will, his own opinion of what the Holy Spirit should and shouldn't do, and he tries to purchase the Holy Spirit. But he, too, has forgotten that he's a fallen creature. He thinks that he is capable of deciding where the Holy Spirit should work miracles, and he should be able to purchase the Holy Spirit and do that. And then the third image we see is of Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch. Now, in this, we find two men who are given over to grace, and they are responding to the salvation which God has purchased for them. They're responding to the grace which comes from God and is imparted by God. But then they have upward aspirations. They're pursuing knowledge. They're pursuing wisdom. They're pursuing goodness because they remember they are falling creatures and they, they desire that upward aspiration. So let's start by looking at Acts chapter 8 verses 1 through 3. And Pastor Amanda, would you read this? Sure. Now Saul approved of putting Stephen to death. And on that day, a great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except for the apostles. Some devout men buried Stephen and mourned loudly for him. But Saul began ravaging the church, entering house after house, and he would drag away men and women and put them in prison. All right. 
what Saul is doing here is heinous. Hmm. Saul later will become Paul. He will be a phenomenal leader in the church whose thoughts, his wisdom, his writings influence us today. But Scripture, while it doesn't hide from us the the wonders of, of God's grace which worked in Paul's life, it also doesn't hide from us the heinous truth of who he was. He was wretched, evil. Hmm. He's fully given over to evil right here. He is so brutally applying the law that he's going in people's houses to drag away men and women. You know, most of the time, people aren't going to bother with running in a house to, to snatch a family out to kill them. You know, they might get them if they're out in the street or something like that. What he's doing is heinous. This is of sinister dimensions, the evil he is laboring here. Pastor Mike? You know, I think for the Apostle Paul, of course, at this point in time, he he uh, he is definitely using the law, and, and it's in a, in a wrong sense. Uh, but I think the beauty here is to understand that Paul always loves what the law has done. It's been a means of God's grace to help us live in those right relationships. And just like anything, the the, the law is meant to convict us of sin and break break of relationships. The moment we start using the law to uh, hurt and harm others, then we are we're misusing it, but most of all we're we are entering and breaking more relationships with God. And so what we find for Paul is once he experiences the grace of God, not only in the law, but the revelation of Christ Jesus and the Spirit of God, then the Spirit now uh, convicts of sin, not just uh, it, even greater than what the law uh, tried to do. And so in other words, when, when we read the law and it says, you know, don't do this, obviously it's, it's legalism, it says don't do it. And you can take that legalism as a means of, of harming others and, and forcing this. But Paul says, you know, the Spirit of God will convict our heart when sin is there and call us to aspire for that right relationship, which is so beautiful. And this is what we have to understand about the Apostle Paul. In other words, and I know I'm rambling here a little bit, but the law can be turned into a form of idolatry. Mm-hmm. Yes. And you know why? Because Paul forgot he was a fallen creature. Right. He thought because he knew the law really well, he was good enough to decide who lived and died. He was a gatekeeper. That's right. He's a gatekeeper. And he's a gatekeeper with the best credentials out there. People are paying big money to hear from Gamaliel. Yeah. People are paying big money to hear from from Paul. They're, they're your keynote speakers. Mm-hmm. But guess what? They're not made good by being a keynote speaker. You're not made good by being one of the most impressive theologians around. You're made good by God. And when you forget that you're a fallen creature, you can sincerely believe. And I actually think Paul probably believes, or excuse me, Saul at this point, believes he's doing what God's is work. righteous and just by the law yeah. when he is being heinous of the most foul dimensions and i I mean that should be a terrifying mirror for all all of us to put in front of ourselves to to to, again to reflect to repent to confess and i I think in the holiness tradition because i believe we rightly believe we don't have to willfully disobey a, a known law of god a classic definition of sin because we don't have to sin every day we are hesitant to repent every day yeah but if sin is relational and if we are relationshiping in a fallen world, there will be brokenness. Yeah. 
And so, yes, maybe we didn't intentionally do anything wrong that day, but how have we participated either through apathy or through a, a conscious action or an unconscious action, participated in systems or cultures or ideologies that are broken relationships. And this is why confession, we, we've got to reclaim confession because yep. if we do, then we start off with, I, you are, remember, you are but dust and to yep. dust you will return. You and, are a fallen creature. Yep. And to build off of that confession, confessions take us back to the question of motivations, not just intentions, not just what you planned on doing, not just what you would like to see happen, not just outcomes even, But you make a confession because you realize I was motivated to serve the throne of all creation and I failed to do that. Maybe I I was negligent. Maybe I missed something. Maybe I was undiscerning. But I confess because my motivation was not where it should have been. Yeah. I believe helped my unbelief. Yeah. That's that's exactly it. Um, Pastor Mike, you know, you know, I believe also for for us to be created in that image of God and being that fallen creation, confession holds its place for us to look at ourselves and look to Christ Jesus, and at very minimum, we confess there is a difference, mm. and that God, please transform us and ask the Holy Spirit to give us direction. And so that I think confession is something, as you said, Dylan, we have to reclaim. It is a vital part of growing and receiving the transforming work of God. And to the point, I know somebody might listen to this and think that I'm just here like rebuking like worldly credentials. And and in one element I am, but I'm also someone who has worldly credentials. Like I've I've been ordained. I've been here as pastor for almost a decade now. You have a master's. I have a master's degree, a master's in science. I've done all this. I have have gone through those routes. And this is a, a repudiation of my own failures in life because there were times in my life where I had been misled to think that I was wise and smart because you had the things I had the things, you know, God has given me this, that, or the other I've done through these. Therefore I must be good. And God has taught me. No, you're actually not. You want to be good. It comes through the Holy spirit. That's it. But here's the thing. What is so wonderful about that is when you understand that you realize that the path of goodness is in within your reach. Like it's a doable task because yes. God paid the way. God paid the full price, but you have to respond on your end. You have to be willing to respond and not think that you're sufficient to do it by yourself. And I love that John Milton quote, sufficient to stand though free to fall. The purpose that God has for us, he will, again, through salvation, through sanctification, you will be made sufficient to do that. That doesn't mean that all the scars go away. That doesn't mean that all the the knowledge of the universe comes and sits upon you and you can be some, you know, Gnostic magician who we're <laughs> about to get to in a second who gets to snap your fingers and the Holy Spirit does what you want. But it and, does mean you will be sufficient to stand. Yeah, mm-hmm. and I think that whole response is something that is not just a one-time moment, but it is a continual yep. response uh, to, to fellowship with God and to be obedient and listen to the Holy Spirit and as a part of our life. And so this response is is something that uh, we constantly need confession and, and yep. you know, looking to God and to ask, you know, help me to respond. Because, again, like Pastor Amanda was saying, you know, uh, passivity is a sin, too. Mm-hmm. So let us respond and respond, um, you know, moment by moment to God's grace. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and Scripture warns us the best arm armament against that, the best armor against that 
the armor of God, it takes us to the question of motivations, not just outcomes, but the core worldview we have. Pastor Mike, would you read for us out of Acts 8, and we've got a variety of scriptures, would you read all of them and just note what scripture you're at for Simon the sorcerer? Yeah, absolutely. Acts uh, chapter 8, I will begin at verse 9, be attentive. Now a man named Simon had previously been practicing magic in the city and astonishing the people of Samaria, claiming to be someone great. Now when Simon himself believed and after being baptized, he continued on with Philip. And as he observed signs and great miracles taking place, he was repeatedly amazed. Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give this authority to me as well, so that everyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. Hmm. All righty. Well, what we find here is Simon... And there's a lot of ways people describe him. Simon the Jewish sorcerer, Simon Magus. I like to say Simon Magus and emphasize that he thinks he's a mage. Mm. Um, I know, a little bit of a just nerdy quirk thrown in there. But (laughs) Simon Magus, who's a villain, like notorious villain in the early church, like straight up Bond villain. And if you hang around to the end of this program, I'll share the story of how he supposedly died because that's an interesting novelty. That'll be my final thought for the program. But he wants to buy one of the three persons of the Holy Trinity. Like, that's his his scheme. And as wild as that sounds, I actually think he's one of our best images of being lukewarm. He's eccentric while being lukewarm, but he's still lukewarm. And here's why. On one hand, he believes. In verse 13 of Acts chapter 8, the scripture says, and now even Simon himself believed. You can go back and study the Greek. It doesn't say that he thought he believed or pretended to believe or believed for a while and then repented or something like that. No, it says he actually believed. And we also know that the demons, they know who Jesus is. They all Mm. say, yeah, you're the son of God. And then they also lie and act like they're the victims when they're not. But Simon, in this case, he's willing to believe on one hand who Jesus is. But on the other hand, he's holding on to something else. He doesn't want to conform to the will of God. Instead, he wants to make God conform to him. He's in the middle. He's saying, okay, well, God is God, but at the same time, I want to buy the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit does what I want. Again, why? Because he thinks he is not a fallen creature, that he knows better than God on how to use the Holy Spirit. Now, whether or not he's conscious of that is beside the point, because that is the motivations he has. That's why you would make this decision. You're not trying to purchase something to use unless you're planning on using it at your own will. Like the, the motivations he has is, I want to purchase this so I can use it by my power. Mm-hmm. Simon has forgot he is a fallen creature. And because of that, he'll say, okay, well, God makes the good, but I can too. Mm-hmm. And this is that lukewarmness where you somehow think that you can serve your own idolatry and God at the same time, and you can't. Well, you know, Dylan, you can still see this this brokenness of, of, of the image of God, this fallenness of creation here, because what's, what's happening here is he wants to be God himself and decide yeah. how to use this power and authority rather than being the image of God yep. that is to reflect the love of God in this world and the leading of the of God's Holy Spirit. He wants to control it and manipulate it and also do it probably for self-gain. Yep. 
Yeah, and I think that's the thing, especially a lot of uh, recent theology in talking about how uh, we are created in the image of God and we are created to be co-creators. There is some pushback to that language, although it hints at something, or it hits at something that's very good. I think there is a part of a lot of theologians that are like, ooh, let's be careful because we don't want to put ourselves in the place of God or yeah. to say we are equal to God. And yet, phenomenally enough, a God of grace does say, you know, hey, you you do have responsibility in this matter. You get to create. You get to um, love like God loves. You get, to, you know, so uh, we are not creator. We are still creature. And, and so this is and also, I think, like you were saying earlier, it's phenomenal about Simon the sorcerer, whatever all his titles may may be. Um, we often think of lukewarmness as kind of like pew warmers, right? Mm-hmm. The apathetic, kind of sit back, relax people. But probably some of the most lukewarm people we know are actually very active and very yeah. loud yeah. in our churches. Yeah. But they're wanting their will. Yep. They kind of want God's will, but they really want their will. Yeah. And and this is this is it's um oh what is it? Purity of heart is to will one thing. I'm trying to think which theologian said that. I feel like it's an old one. I'm gonna go with like Augustine or Thomas A. Kempis, but that may be very wrong. Um and this is not to say that at times we might be conflicted or at times we may be confused, but it is to say when the rubber meets the road, uh, when Good Friday is, is you know, a couple hours away, we pray not our will, but thy will be done. This Amen. is this is what it means to be, uh, to borrow language from Revelation that talks about to the one church, you're lukewarm, I want to spit you out of my mouth. To be hot or cold is to know where you stand. Yeah. But to think somehow I can exist both in the realm of uh, the world and the realm of God, it, it, you can't do it. Yeah, and that's so in Kierkegaard. Purity oh. of will is to, or purity of heart is to, to will, will one, one thing. thing. But okay. going back to while we're in Acts 8, Acts 8 shows you someone given over to evil mm. who's in that like cold, though also kind of hot, fiery hell place. So cold Saul, it's hot? Like cold a- is hot. Yeah, weird tension. Anyways, <laughs> you've got one end of the spectrum. Mm-hmm. But Saul becomes Paul. Mm-hmm. You know, Revelation, when it tells us, you know, Jesus does not have an appetite for the lukewarm. You will be spit out. This chapter actually shows that to you. Pa- Saul becomes Paul. Paul is very influential in the church, a very, very godly man. Um, the image we're about to get to is also very godly. But the lukewarm middle ends never a, repents and yeah. ends a terrible death. Pastor Mike? Well, you know, I think there there's a tremendous understanding here that God is calling us to be his instrument and uh, to write off uh, Pastor Amanda's coattails here that we are um, in the sense of co-creators in the sense God's instrument. We are not God. And so we are instruments of love. We're God's use. We want to, we're God's tool, but we are not the one in control and in charge. And we always see this, this desire of authority and power and, and climbing the uh, the you know the the political ladder of the church or something always uh, a very slippery slope to a downfall that really is out of line with what God has has for us and so you, we have to keep that premise in mind that we are utterly dependent upon God for our salvation and not only that but our sanctification being made holy and that we are to give our 
ourselves to God for his instrument of use. And when we understand that, that's where we get into this place of understanding how to be a co-creator of creating love, reconciliation, by being used by God for God's purposes. Yeah. Mm. And I want to head back to something Amanda said about how the, the lukewarm people are not always just the pew sitters. Sometimes they're they're actually people who are quite active. When you actually look at a lot of the damage done throughout the history of God's people, you do see how devastating that lukewarm center is. Again, Simon Magus here, Simon the Sorcerer, Simon Magus, wicked, great villain of the church, or terrible villain, we might say. Uh, you look also at Pontius Pilate. He, he has enough information and even discernment to know that Jesus is innocent and then still lets the crucifixion happen. And he's, he's guilty for his own actions. There's no, mm. no you know, acquittal given on that count. But also when you, you come to the next portion we have, another thing that had been mentioned here is being an instrument of God's grace. Where do we actually line in being co-creators? Because I've heard that language used a lot. I heard mm-hmm. it a lot when I was going through school. I've heard it a lot in a lot of different places. I think the answer comes between, do you view being a co-creator as the Tower of Babel, mm-hmm. where you decide you're going to build your way all the way up to heaven? And you'll notice, if you read back there in Genesis, the whole plan is they get to seize the throne of heaven. They get to be the ones who look at the world through their purview of choice like we get to be the one who sits on the throne of heaven we ignore god you know and to quote c.s lewis i think in the paralandra you know you you ignore the good to the point of annihilation Hmm. you ignore it what we have here in the last passages we're going to look at is someone who sees themselves as an instrument but not as a tower of babel and philip is an instrument of the holy spirit clearly and he is a co-creator in the gospel, co-creating good, but he's not making a tower of Babel to, to seize the throne of God. So let's jump into this reading. Or Pastor Mike, you had something you wanted to add before we get yeah, into that. Yeah, I, I just want to say, you know, when you deny the supremacy of God and God's authority and power and want to have that power and authority, we see it not only in Simon the Sorcerer, but uh, Pontius Pilate, um, the, the chief priest and things that felt that threat to their power and authority and denied the Son of God who does have, you know, supreme, supreme power and authority with God the Father. Mm-hmm. Yep. Pastor Amanda, would you read our final selection sure. of Scripture? All right. Hear the word of the Lord from Acts uh, chapter 8, verses 26 through 31, and then we'll jump down to 38 through 40. But an angel of the Lord spoke to Philip, saying, Get ready and go south to the road that descends from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is the desert road. So he got ready and went. And there was an Ethiopian eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. And he had come to Jerusalem to worship. And he was returning and sitting in his chariot and was reading Isaiah the prophet. Then the spirit said to Philip, Go up and join this chariot. And Philip ran up and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and said, Do you understand what you're reading? And he said to him, Well, how can I, unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now jumping down to verse 38. And he ordered that the chariot stop, and they both went down into the water, and Philip as well as the eunuch, and he baptized him. When they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord snatched Philip away, and the eunuch no longer saw him, but went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself at Azotus, and as he passed through, he kept preaching the gospel to all cities until he came to Caesarea. 
All right. Phenomenal. Philip gets snatched up in the I, end. I love that. The, whoever decided to translate that word was phenomenal because I know snatch. That's not snatching. Not just like floated up, snatched up. I know it's it's not. It's like, a good verb. <laughs> it is a good verb. It's not like the story of Enoch mm. or you know like chariots coming to to take a prophet away in like this elegant <laughs> procession. Um, it's like nah, snatched. <laughs> And we'll say that with like a nice Tennessee accent. Yeah, you got the accent up. in there. So, all interesting eccentricities aside, <laughs> we do find instruments of good here, mm. and we also find two men, the Ethiopian and Philip, who remember they are fallen creatures, and they have great hope in it. This is a way. This is a a upward movement, but it also has definitive points. the The eunuch is getting baptized. Philip is going to teach. He's going to share the gospel. There are distinct moments, things we can tell. But there is upward aspirations. And again, built into this, you're not looking upward if you already think you're on the throne of heaven. Mm. You're only looking upward if you recognize you're a fallen creature who needs to go up. Mm -hmm. And again, for Philip, you're not going to follow the Holy Spirit if you're Simon who thinks that the Holy Spirit works for you. (laughs) You're only following the Holy Spirit if you understand you work for God and you work for God, the Holy Spirit. So we do find two characters given over to grace. Again, it's a little bit like people playing catch, like a, a father playing catch with a son. The dad has purchased a ball that a child can't catch. And Children a lot of times want to throw temper tantrums. They want to play games with their own rules. If the child will learn how to play the game, he can have a lot of fun with his dad. God has paid for us salvation, but he is now throwing us the ball. And if we're willing to catch it, we can step into goodness. We can step into Mm -hmm. that beauty. And understanding that we are fallen creatures is the hopeful path. And you look here at this incident with Philip and the Ethiopian, and even the verse before this, where the church is out preaching all throughout the various regions. You know, Simon just tried to cheapen them because that's a cheap move. He's like some side, you know, parlor trick. And Saul is over there killing them. There's a lot of discouraging things happening, but the church is still having praise and, and joy. And you do find Philip being on fire for the Lord. You find the Ethiopian being on fire for the pursuit of of the upward mobility towards the throne of heaven, and it's glorious, it is good. And I mean that in the true sense of the word. This is an absolute wonder to see the the beauty of the end of this chapter. And as we take these three images of character, Saul, Simon, Philip, and the Ethiopian, we, we understand how we can find goodness in life when we start from the point that says God makes the good, we pursue mm. him. We need to learn from Isaiah. We need to go and meet the Ethiopian, who we've never met before, and we need to teach him about the gospel because God makes the good. Philip doesn't go over there to talk about what Philip likes in life or his own life story. He goes to tell the story of Jesus, and the Ethiopian, he himself wants to learn. There's that upward aspiration. They're given over to grace, and goodness breaks forth. Pastor Mike. You know, I think one of the key things for us to understand is is the Ethiopian eunuch, and he is a eunuch, and so he is looking for, um, you know, spiritual. He's he's gone to Jerusalem. He's heading back down towards Gaza and back to uh, Ethiopia. And what we find out is that that God is he is 
is answering his desire to be made whole and complete. And obviously, physically, he can no longer be complete. And he's struggling spiritually. And as they get there, he finds this great joy in knowing that you, you got to understand, he has the scroll of Isaiah. Probably was by being an Ethiopian eunuch, uh, he probably wasn't allowed even in uh, the, the, the temple in Jerusalem. But yet, leaving and going back, God comes and reveals himself and what great um, hope he gives this eunuch and the joy, this completeness, this wholeness is beyond anything he can ever imagine. Got to be baptized. And uh, this is just a great uh, illustration in our Bible that, that, uh, that of a, a tremendous event mm. yeah. that is really applicable to to everyone yeah yeah Pastor Man. i think okay so kind of also just all those points yeah the ethiopian uh, eunuch he was pursuing god now of course Praveen grace tells us god pursues us long before we even recognize that so god has laid out throughout the whole fabric of creation calling all people back to god's self and the ethiopian eunuch responds and he goes to jerusalem he's trying to worship and the people of god have set up barriers between this person and God. They, mm-hmm. they set up regulations and rules that says, you're not good enough, you you can't make it, you know, you don't fit within our parameters, our gatekeeping has shut you out. And then God's like, eh, watch me, um, and sends Philip. And that's the other thing, Philip hears the, the spirit of the Lord, the angel of the Lord saying, go to this road. And Philip doesn't say, well, I don't have time or I gotta do something else. He just says, all right, starts walking down the road. And also what I think is amazing is most of the disciples, like the 12 apostles or the 11 apostles, and then they grab that 12th one in, in the beginning of Acts, it took them about three years to un- of discipleship to get where they could be without Jesus, right? Yeah. And yet in this story, and I may be reading into more than what's intended, but in this story, Philip is snatched up after just baptizing this eunuch. There is something in the story that says God's prevenient grace, God's discipling grace is still existing even when one, the church has failed to be the church, or two, when it can't be present. And and there's something phenomenal about that, that that God goes further and, and stronger than we could ever imagine. Now, God does not abandon us. God still calls us to be responsible for evangelism and discipleship and mission work. But it's not us that's bringing God. God's already there. God's been working for Mm -hmm. however long the earth's been, you know, rotating. Since the first creature, even before humanity, when the first living being took its breath or photosynthesized, God's grace was already working. And, and, And that's good news. And just to kind of give my final thought on this as well, when you look at the early church, you can go just a hair back in the book of Acts and see Stephen. Mm. Stephen's another one of these who's brought in to kind of really broaden the leadership of the church. And you see how these early Christians, Philip, Stephen, they they are moved by the Holy Spirit. They have discernment. They are being instruments who are sane and willing to do things that the world doesn't want done. You know, you see how Stephen is stoned. He looks there and he sees God the Father and God the Son. And while he's doing that, the religious leaders of the day are throwing a temper tantrum, like covering their ears, screaming like toddlers. They're supposed to be the most mature, the most credentialed people around, and they're they're looking like children while Stephen is, is being stoned, but yet that fortitude of character perseveres. Mm-hmm. Pastor Mike, 
I'll let you have one word, and then we'll have our final thoughts and wrap up. You know, I think as we look at the Ethiopian eunuch, uh, I think it's important to understand that tradition tells us that he did go back to Ethiopia. And though God creates and establishes the church, he was used as God's instrument for the church to be planted there. Mm -hmm. And wow, what a, you know, from this incident and Philip's obedience to go and to glue himself to the chariot and interpret and help with the scriptures to men being used by God yep. as an instrument to bring about a creation of a church in Ethiopia. Wonderful. Wonderful indeed. Yeah. All right. So we've got some final thoughts just wrapping things up. It's been a good program. I hope you've enjoyed this. We have talked a lot about being a holy people. And it begins with recognizing God makes the good. And you are a fallen creature. Mm. And if you can't get that right, none of the technical stuff matters. And if you do get right, you can then step into the technical stuff and really have that deeper understanding. But getting that premise right is really what matters. And from teaching theology, if we're going to be stewards of the gospel, and again, recognizing that God makes the good and that we're fallen creatures, we're called to be stewards, not counselors of Scripture. And what I mean by that is we don't counsel God and say, well, this is what you meant to say or, or that. No, we're here to be stewards of the gospel truth. But there's a lot of people who might think they're counselors of it, um, advisors telling God what he should do. But mm. what we have, it's my final thought, is the death of Simon Magus, which he goes on to be a, a nasty villain. He, he's into Gnosticism. He's into all the, like, debaucherous heresies. But he really wants to be perceived as, as sort of a godlike figure himself. I mean, in Acts, we're already told he likes to impress people into thinking he's great. But his death is actually this somehow levitating act. A lot of people don't realize this. He dies, and actually our, our title for this episode has a picture of him levitating upside down and then like the, the gates of heaven coming to smite him. Simon May just wants to prove to the world that he's either a celestial being like an angel. Maybe he's a demigod. Maybe he, he is a god himself that's not a demigod. Who knows? He wants to show people that he's this heavenly body. And he performs an act of levitation. And who knows what actually happens. But supposedly he starts to levitate off the ground and then falls and his leg breaks in three places. And now the people that watch this are so mad at him for this like blasphemous act that they stone him. Now, where the stories get interesting is some say that he died there on the spot being stoned. Others say that physicians come to aid him, and then while the physicians were working on him, that they killed him. So who knows how he really died? But he continued to be... We didn't have the Hippocratic Oath yet? <laughs> did not have the Hippocratic Oath yet, no. Uh, he, he was wicked throughout his life is basically what this boils down to. Mm. And that lukewarmness which he embodies... He never repents of it. Even though his last entry we have in the book of Acts is he's trying, he says, you know, pray for me that these things won't happen. It's interesting he says that when he's being talked to about the church about repentance. You can almost kind of read his statement. It's like, pray that I don't have to repent. Mm. Um, but he never does. He never repents. And that's a very sad thing because God did not make us to levitate in the air and break into pieces and then be smoked. But God made us that we would be repentant and we would be saved. Mm. And that we would be whole and just. Again, going back to pre-fall, so before the fall, God made us to be whole and just. So, important things. All right, final thoughts from others here about things going on in the world. They can be completely unrelated to this, <laughs> which the whole death there kind of was. Uh, Yeah, unrelated to anything, just a final thought. Um, 
movie theaters are opening up here in Nashville, and it's fun to get out and to watch movies again. And also the weather's warming. And I know movies seem like an indoor activity. I mean, they are. But still, like, the weather's getting nicer. People are getting out more. I think just we all need to take the chance and the opportunity, whatever is fun for you, as long as it's healthy, um, take time to get out. And, again, be healthy, be safe. But, I don't know, we just need to, I think, breathe a little bit more. Um, so enjoy, enjoy the nice weather. And if your movie theaters are opening up and you enjoy that, go, go out. Well, um, I would just like to say, you know, if we look at the entire sanctification, it's God's work in us for God's work through us. And, and I think that's a, a, a good premise to start because we need that work of God in us because we are that fallen creation, but we're not called to stay fallen, called to aspire for what God originally created. Amen. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you for joining us. Again, this is Kingdom of the Lagos here with our Nazarene Open University. So we hope to see you again soon. God love you and have a blessed day.